There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Welcome to another episode of The Nuanced Life. We are so excited to be here today sharing what I really like one listener has called, instead of commemoration, she calls them little victories. I really like that. Do you like that, Beth? Well, I do. I just want to make space for the sad ones as well. Oh, that's true. That's true. Okay. Well, that's a good point. But we're sharing those. We'll be sharing some feedback. And we are going to carry our 9-11 series from Pantsuit Politics over to The Nuanced Life today and talk about the way in which that national trauma affected all of us, the way we dealt with it, the ways in which we did not deal with it, and have a conversation about that. So we're really looking forward to that. And then, of course, we'll end the show with inspiration for the rest of your week. So this commemoration segment is becoming the highlight of my week. Every week, reading the messages Mm -hmm. as they come in, we are going to start with Allison, who created the Little Victories phrase. She said she loves that we're doing this and wants to take the opportunity to share her own little victory. This week, I weaned my daughter, who will be two next week from breastfeeding. It was an easy transition for her and hard for me. She was born two months early, and during our time in the NICU, breastfeeding was the only thing that made me feel like her mom. I bet that's a sentence Mm. lots of people can relate to and probably just sighed hearing somebody putting it into words. Then in the first year, as I struggled hard with postpartum depression and working full time, breastfeeding felt like the only thing I was doing right. It's hard to celebrate this victory because breastfeeding as a topic can be so contentious and being proud of it is often interpreted as being judgmental of people who don't breastfeed. I am so glad to have a space where I know the nuance of my pride will not be confused with judgment of others. Thank you, Allison. Congratulations. Mm, I love that. And we just need to, so many things about that. First of all, I love the idea of we have to let people celebrate. We cannot rob people of their celebrations because it makes us feel judged or overly self-aware of our own choices. Like, man, we gotta let, we got to leave some space for people. Breastfeeding stinking hard and celebrate it all you want, Allison. Although my celebration was mostly happy, 90% happy when I was done. But good for you. Good for you for two years is a long time. Cheers is a very long time. That's amazing. We're so glad you got through that difficult period. It's also good because I have such a pained memory of breastfeeding as like a thing that I'm happy that I did, but that was so ridiculously hard. And it's always nice for me to hear reminders of how it is this really interesting source of connection to the baby. Mm -hmm. And I I don't think I focus on that part enough. (laughs) I just remember that was really hard. I was all about it. I was in a positive space when they were newborns. Then they start moving. 
and I'm less a fan. I've talked about this before. I have low threshold for physical sort of what we call in the South wallering. And man, breastfeeding just becomes like one long wallering at a certain point. When they're like sweet little newborns, they just they just sleep and you're holding them and they're eating. Oh man, all day. Love it. Love that part. Man, when they start like jerking and moving, and my favorite when they're just like, ooh, what's going on over here? Okay, I want to eat some more. Ooh, what's going on over here? Mm, no, I hate that. I hate it so much. Sorry, just need to express that. Well, my my connotation with breastfeeding, I can't think about it without thinking about pumping. And pumping uh, is of the devil. Pumping is worse. It's, it's of the devil. Here's what I tell people. It's all the worst parts of breastfeeding with none of the good parts. None of the good parts. There's no physical touch, endorphin release, nothing. It's just all the worst parts of breastfeeding. They've, like, put in a little machine. Well, and all this sense of, like, is it going to be enough? And am I enough? Oh. And what am I doing right? And do I need to drink more water? Whatever. It's horrible. And if you're out there it's pumping, awful. good for you. And if you're choosing get, get not it. to do that, I am not judging you one single solitary Mm-mm. bit. So there we are. Congratulations, It Allison. always makes I know, Allison, we're like dumping all our negative breastfeeding stuff on Let your me commemoration. myself about breastfeeding because of your message. But we don't feel judged. No. We just feel like you've opened up a space for us to talk yes. about it, which is a celebration in and of itself. Thank you. I mean, it always makes me so sad when people are like, especially in the beginning, told to pump so much. I'm like, don't do it. It'll make you hate breastfeeding. Like, no, don't. Put the pump away. That thing is like, do you hear trauma when you hear the... Yes. Oh, don't even do it. I can't. I just got to chill. Yeah, it's awful. It's awful. It's bad. Somebody, There is a hole in the market for somebody to make pumping less trim. There has got to be a way well, there are or something. Well, who say that they have, but they haven't They're yet. They're lying. No, they haven't yet. The only person that contributed to that space is those people who made up the chocolate chip cookies with all the stuff in it that makes your milk come in. Yeah, the milk makers. They're good. Those work. Mm-hmm. Those people contributed. Like, and you can make them yourself. That's what I always take to my friends when they have new babies that have a breastfeeding problem. But, like, they're so good. They just taste like chocolate chicken, but they have oatmeal and that brewer cheese and all that stuff in it. That Those work. Those work. I love those cookies. Okay, we're going to. I guess I could still eat them, right, when my milk come in? I don't think so. I'm going to make me a batch. They're delicious. I'm just saying right now, they are so good. You know so what? I'm good. craving some breastfeeding cookies. Some breastfeeding baby, chocolate chip cookies. not so much, but some breastfeeding cookies. Not the baby. Cookies. I don't want the baby part. I want the cookie part. Yes. Side note, I, I've been going through this thing for a couple of weeks of feeling like maybe we should have another baby. But I think what I've realized is I don't want to have another baby. I just want to have a business with Chad. Like, that's the kind of creation uh, that I want to do. But it's a very confusing thing. But my therapist told me there's only one creative force in the whole world. And so that's why sometimes you can confuse what that creative force is calling you to. Anyway, um, this is what my husband when feel. I think it's an I think it, my husband is right because Ellen is about the age when we started thinking about this with Felix and Nicholas is like, this is a biology trick. This is a trick of evolution. They get to a certain age and they start. It's not that they're less cute. They're cute in a different way, but they're like losing the baby fat. And I'm telling you, it's like an it's like an evolutionary thing. Your body starts going, mm, need another one, need another one, need another one. I think that's what it is. I think so too. I feel it in a physical way, right? Like I yeah. feel like my body is physically saying, okay, I'm open again. We can do it. Mm-hmm. 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 But I don't want that. Thank you, body. Appreciate it. Your body is a liar. My body body is deceiving me. Okay, we're far afield. We're going to go to Sarah's message now. Not you, Sarah. Another Sarah. Who started off, I'm not sure if this qualifies as a particularly unique commemoration. I want to take a time out to say, yes, it does. They all do. Everybody does. You don't need to qualify your celebrations with us. Sarah just moved out on her own for the first time last weekend. Hooray! 
Sarah is 25. She says, I recently ended a six-year relationship with a guy I thought I was going to marry, moved out of our shared apartment, and back in with my parents for a few months. And I have finally gotten back on my feet and into my own dream studio apartment in Center City, Philadelphia. As an extrovert, I've always struggled with spending long periods of time alone, and I was terrified to get my own place by myself, but I decided to take on the challenge of learning how to enjoy my own company for the first time and Mm, building a new life on my own terms. I come from strong Puerto Rican family roots where virtually all my relatives get married and start families young. Seriously, three of my cousins got engaged last year and two of them were younger than me and always saw myself (laughs) married and on my way to having children at 25. But... I'm finally taking a step back to explore and accept that even though my life has changed directions a bit, it's okay to take my own path. I'm still a bit nervous, but I'm looking forward to growing, meeting new people, making friends, and building my identity outside of a romantic partnership and my family, who I love, of course, but I need them to not completely define me. My mom is like you with her attachment, Sarah. Ha ha. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad I discovered fancy politics last year and the nuanced life is wonderful as well. We are too, Sarah. Good for you. All the hallelujahs for this message. I'm so, this Sarah with an H is jealous of this Sarah without an H because I have never lived by myself in my whole life. It is sort of a big regret I have and I'm super jealous of your apartment. Sounds awesome, Sarah. You get it, girl. I'm super jealous. I love this recognition of ending a six-year relationship with a guy I thought I was going to marry because I feel like that is part of so many women's origin stories I was in this long-term thing with this person that I thought I was going to marry. And a lot of women who I know who have that as part of their origin story, the next chapter is sort of why that relationship would have been catastrophic had they stayed in it and how it opened up their lives in ways they couldn't have even imagined while they were in that relationship. So I hope that that happens for you, Sarah. Oh, and Sarah, you should get Rebecca Traister's All the Single Ladies. You will love it. It will be very important in your life right now. And that would be a good book for you to read in your awesome new apartment. Just, you know, I love to recommend things. Do you remember Aubrey from our Pantsuit Politics sex addiction episode, Sarah? I do very well. Very intense interview on Pantsuit Politics. We'll link it in the show notes if you've not heard it before. We talked with Aubrey, who is married to someone who has a sex addiction, and she explained to us what that's like and talked about therapy and their process of everything. She shared with us that her husband is coming up on six months of sobriety for the first time in his adult life. So that is a very big deal for Aubrey and her family, and we are so delighted to hear that and congratulate them very sincerely. So we've gotten lots of good feedback over a couple of our episodes. We've got lots of Sarahs writing in today. So another Sarah wrote in and said, I just wanted to say I loved your conversation this week about showing up for your friends. I am definitely more of an introvert, but showing up is definitely one of these tenets I try to stay true to as much as possible. This past weekend, I attended a wedding for a friend from college. I was kind of surprised initially to be invited, not because we weren't good friends, but weddings these days are expensive, and I understand when people want to keep them smaller. I was so happy to be invited, and I let my friend know that I was happy she wanted me there and continued saying that the like through the weekend, which I love. I think that's such a good thing to do. And then through the weekend, my friend and her husband thanked me for being there at least a dozen times. I think both of these things are crucial to showing up because it emphasizes that it's not a chore or duty that either of you have to do. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. I do too. Being a joyful guest is a big deal. And then I really, really love this this message from Monica who lost her husband suddenly five years ago. And she has so many thoughts about what helps. But I think this is beautiful. She says, a practical suggestion on how to really show up and talk about the person who died. Say their name. 
It's astonishing how many ways people try to avoid saying my late husband's name, as if hearing it will make me sad. My goodness, avoiding his name makes me feel more sad. I have a dear friend who calls me every month and just talks about him. Sometimes I chime in. Sometimes I just listen and cry, and it feels so good that someone says his name and talks about his life. Oh, that makes me cry. How funny he was, what she learned from him, little things about him, and what she noticed about how much he loved me and loved our precious children. She always starts the call by saying, hey, I was thinking about FJ today. I sure do miss him. I look forward to these calls as I rebuild my life. After all, his story, our story, didn't end with his death. He and I together built a foundation of love, and that foundation supports me in a measure ways as I care for our four children. Our story isn't about his death. It's about his life. My friend gets that. Oh, Monica. Mm, that's so good. Testify. That is so good. I love that. And I, I've always thought about that. I heard someone say that for the first time when we were at the DNC and the mothers of the movement came out and spoke. And one of the mothers said, I didn't stop being his mother the day he died. And I think about that all the time, that this relationship continues when someone we love dies. And how can we support that relationship? How can those around us that we love support that relationship? I just think that's such a beautiful way to think about it and saying their name and sharing stories. Mm, I just love that so much. And I don't know why we think that introduces so much complexity. It really doesn't. You know, my girls never really knew my grandmother, who is an incredibly important figure in my life because she died just a couple of days after Ellen was born. And she had pretty serious dementia and Alzheimer's before um, Jane was born. So she was never to them what she was to me. They totally understand who Grandmother Joy is. They completely get that she died, but that we love her, that she's in our hearts, that she taught us things, that she said things that were funny that we talk about sometimes. It's astonishingly not hard to hold on to someone in that way when we allow ourselves to do it. I was thinking about this in relationship to immigration. Go with me here. And I hate the narrative that we have to protect American culture and people should assimilate because I think there are so many ways in which other countries' cultures are such a gift to us. Like I really love the growing narrative around Mexico and the culture surrounding the dead and the day of the dead and how we keep people alive, even down to the new Disney movie Coco. I just think like that beautiful narrative from that country is such a gift to a culture that sometimes doesn't know how to deal with death or grief or losing someone we've loved. And like what a beautiful addition to American culture. I think it is so positive. And, you know, since we my husband was born Episcopal, but I um, convert to the Episcopal Church and there's All Saints Day and we do sort of some similar um, liturgies and our church family goes outside and we light candles for those who have died that year, other people we've lost. And I just, you know, I didn't grow up with that. I didn't grow up with we're going to make space for those who have died. You know, my family wasn't unlike most Southern families, like we didn't visit grave sites. We didn't do that stuff. And so I really think it is so important with my own children to create space for those who have passed and to keep them alive in our hearts and to continue that relationship. And I think Monica's suggestion is such a good way to do that. That's probably a good transition point to start talking about our post 9-11 culture. One of the things I think we don't do well in America is grief and death. I think our uniquely American culture around grief and death is so destructive or uniquely absence of a unique absence of culture almost. Well, I mean we have one, right? But but the messages from it are so depressing and cold and final and distant. Mhm. And I think that after we experience something like 
you really see that effort to move on as quickly as possible. Yep. Get back to work, go shopping, participate in your life as normal. And I understand where that came from, but it misses so much. And and in some ways, it was just a really exaggerated example of what we do to ourselves all the time in the midst of trauma. I started thinking about this a lot when I read a book by Sebastian Younger called Tribe. It starts off talking about people who were kidnapped by Indian tribes and how they often didn't want to go back in Western culture. And it was just, it's a really interesting jumping off point. But one thing he talks about a lot is countries um, like England during the Blitz in World War II or during um, Bosnia, how the the... the the community itself, the people will say, oh, my God, it was so hard. It was so terrible. And I kind of miss it. Like, because there was this joining of each other, we had a common purpose. Everyone was sacrificing. We were in it together. And at the same time, I guess I was probably, I think around the time, the same time I was reading Brene Brown. And she talks a lot in a couple of her books about the trauma of 9-11 and how she feels this sort of mass kind of numbing or... Um, distraction in our culture, and she thinks they're related. I absolutely think they're related. And I think 9-11 was this space in which we felt this trauma as a country, but there was no bonding together as a community. Or if there was, I mean, I think there was in the immediate aftermath, but it was so short-lived. And what I all I remember being told is basically, go on with your normal life, go shopping. And I it's not that I don't think that's an important message, of, especially in the face of terrorism, that we will we will not cower in fear. You will not keep us from our values, from living our daily lives. Like, I think there's an important component of that, especially with such a large act of terrorism. But at the same time, you know, it was basically like, you know, support the administration, go shopping. I do not think it's an accident that the Dixie Chicks got treated the way they did because there was no room for a different expression of grief. There was no room for a a different expression of sacrifice or a different expression of common purpose. Like it was just, it just breaks my heart because I do feel like as I look back on it, I think that there was a moment to get America on the same side in a way we really haven't seen since and, and channel that into something positive, something building something new in our country as opposed to just channeling into tearing something down abroad. I think that's such a reflection of how we process and don't process mm-hmm. all kinds of individual traumas. One of the things that I really vividly remember from 9-11 was that our classes weren't canceled that mm. day. We were in college and I remember going to like an accounting class and I remember the room and the professor and the weight of the room. Hmm. You know, just an hour or something after we all came to understand what had happened. And the professor kind of saying, well, it's a tough day. There's nothing we can do about it. So we're just going to get to it here. And I'm not mad at him about that or mad at the university. I hope that we've come to understand ourselves a little better since the time we were in college. But I don't think we've done much better. Because all kinds of traumas played out while I was working at a law firm and we never stopped to say, you know, let's take a beat and deal with this trauma. 
Yep. There's always this sense that we can work our way out of whatever's happening, that we can yep. distract ourselves, that we can numb whatever's going on, and in the process of doing so, it will go away. And instead, what I think we have now is just the hardening of all these experiences that we have not worked through. I think that's why we have a drug problem yep. in the United States. I think that's why we have such high rates of suicide and depression and it's just something that we really need to take a pause as a culture and work through. I mean, I saw this in my own community after the shooting. Um, and I won't speak to the experience of the high schoolers because we had another shooting in my community recently. But my experience was very much like they did the, they did the right thing on the next day. We brought, Well, I always say that. My narrative has been for so long it was the right thing to, for us to go back to school the next day because we needed to be together with people who understand what we were going through. But now talking to so many of my classmates and realizing, like, I was not in the building. To those who were in the building, going back the next day was incredibly traumatizing. I think that in some ways, I think they understood, like, we need to be together. But I think it was also driven by a, a message I got over and over again, which is we need to get back to normal. We need to get back to normal. And I think partly because it was so painful for the parents to see us traumatized and they felt like they had not protected us and they wanted to. I can under, Now, as a parent, I understand the drive to do that because I even feel myself doing it with my own kids. You know, we do it all the time. We fall down. You're OK. You're OK. Maybe they're not. You know, maybe I'm not OK. And maybe it's not normal. There is a new normal. So we can't go back. It's so disingenuous, even if it comes from a good place, to say get back. There is get back to normal. There is no getting back. Nobody has a time machine. Nobody can undo the trauma. There is no getting back to anything resembling what happened, the life you had before you were traumatized. It's just unfair to say it like that. I think we should strike that phrase from our language. But, you know, I felt it then. I definitely felt it after 9-11. And I think that we hear, we've heard from so many listeners since we, we did the first episode of people saying, you know, it all came flooding back. I didn't expect the emotions to be that raw. I didn't expect to feel it so profoundly. Um, people felt, when they listened to that episode, they felt sad. They felt angry. Some people felt angry at us for bringing it up again. Um, and it's just it's reflective of all these different emotions we feel in a moment of trauma like that. And that if we do not give them space to breathe, um, to do what my friend Annie calls parasite theory, to just pull them out of our head, say them to each other and say, do you feel that way? Is that weird? Can I talk about that? How do I, feel? you know, just give it some light to either be dealt with in a real way or to die in the light, then it you know it grows and it festers and i feel like that's so much that's what has, of what has happened after 911 it's almost like taking a feeling and sticking it in the freezer yeah or a petri dish i feel like one of our listeners sent along this really great YouTube's exploration by a woman named Lindsay Ellis, who's a pop culture critic who does these really great videos on YouTube. And she did a two-part thing on 9-11. And I was really excited to watch it because I love pop culture. I think it is a really interesting um, way to explore our values as a as a community, as a country, and how we deal with things. So I couldn't wait to watch it. There's two, it's two segments that are each about 30 minutes long. And I watched it, and she walks through. It's really interesting. She starts with um, how they immediately sort of removed the World Trade Center from so many openings. So they struck it from The Sopranos. They struck it from Friends. They just erased it. Like the first instinct was, it's almost like what Monica says, like, oh, oh no, we can't remind anybody it was there. Like anyone was going to forget. 
right? Like seeing the World Trade Center and the opening of The Sopranos was going to remind someone who'd forgotten that 9-11 happened. So they do that, and then they do, um, you have some sort of, a few attempts at recreations. You have the bro country, the we'll stick a boot in your ass, it's the American way, Toby Keith approach. And then you have sort of the sad Alan Jackson song, Where Were You the Day Stop Turning? And she talks about that, and she talks about, there's one show, one movie that I really want to watch called The 25th Hour by Spike Lee, where she says gives a little bit more room to the different ways people dealt with it. One character is really in denial. One character is really angry. And I thought that was really interesting. And then she just keeps going, and I kept waiting for the moment where, like, here's where we got far enough away we could really talk about it in an authentic way. But spoiler alert, we never did. Like, we made some half-hearted attempts that didn't go over well because people either felt like they were exploiting the tragedy or they were just too one-sided. And then... We just stopped talking about it. <laughs> it's like we then we then we got to the point where people will make jokes about it, but there was never any. I think it might be interesting to to expand that to look to novels because I think actually fiction did a much better job dealing with the post nine eleven world. But I still feel like it's like we never really even on the most base sort of pop culture level said how does this make us all feel? You know your point. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. About there not being a back to normal is such an important one in that way. Something that I talk about in one of the leadership classes that I offer is that whenever you fire someone or someone quits on a team, that is a work trauma. There is something in that that everyone needs to process. Even if somebody leaves under the best possible circumstances, they got an amazing new opportunity overseas where their new spouse is waiting for them, right? (laughs) That kind of thing causes everyone else to pause and look at their own lives for a second. And they do a little bit of, gosh, should I be looking for something else? Why am Mm. I still here? Why does this person want to do this thing if I don't want to do it too? And would I want that kind of life? And and when someone's fired, there's a whole lot of the same kind of thing that goes on. People affect each other on the most basic level. And you have yeah. to acknowledge that as a work trauma and understand that anytime someone leaves or comes in, you the old team is dead and there's a brand new team. And this brand new team has to go through the whole process of sorting out how it's going to be and how everybody's going to work together and what everyone's roles mean. And if you skip that in any circumstance, the situation will get worse. Even when you've brought in somebody new and awesome, right? If you skip the step of allowing the team to process and get their arms around what's going on and establish a new normal, you've made the status quo worse. And I think that's what we've done on a national level when we just say, let's get back to normal. Our, our normal becomes a little bit worse. And I think that's what happens whenever we have some kind of grief in our lives and we don't take time for it. We get back to normal, but that normal is so decayed by what's happened. 
I heard the most amazing quote the other day. They were talking about grief and suffering, and I think it was Richard Rohr on Oprah's Super Soul Conversation. He said, you can either be transformed through suffering or you can transmit suffering. And I feel that among all of us when we talk about 9-11, even to this day. So when I move through my daily life right now and you know, people ask me about work and I tell people that we're working on this series. I say we're working on a series about 9-11. We went through the dates of the day, blah, blah, blah. The only thing people seem capable of doing are talking about where they were when it happened. Everyone wants to work through the trauma of how they felt that day. And that's where the conversation ends. Everybody's like, you know, you can't, when I try to say, you know, and I don't feel like the, the government pushed us into a healthy place. I think the war in Iraq was um, and continues to traumatize other people and traumatize us. And what could we have done different? What should our leaders? Nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to think about what could have been different or how we were all left to deal with this in a very shallow, individualistic way. Everybody is figuratively stuck on that day. We were not, as a country, given a path out of that suffering. The only person I think about attempting to help us, and this is not going to shock anybody, is Oprah. I very much vividly remember the episode she made after 9-11. I remember her talking about, I wake up every morning, I think about those people who went to were just going to their work and everything stopped. And I remember like her sort of attempts to, let's process this, let's think about how how much grief we have, but she was still, you know, limited by a TV show. She was still limited to an hour in which we really need to have a nice conclusion. And I just, I'm so angry that that's where we were all left, that no one, that there was no leadership in places where it mattered. And I don't think George Bush was malicious. I think he was doing the best he could with some bad advice, but we needed more. We needed more. That was the, you know, the most deadly terrorist attack on American soil before or after. And we were offered no leadership, no guidance, nothing beyond get back to normal and go shop. And it just breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. I just think they didn't know how. And how would they? There's nothing in our culture that would give us any window into that. We don't give ourselves permission to grieve anything that isn't personal. And we don't give ourselves permission to grieve the personal unless it's a particular kind of personal. I've had so many conversations about bereavement policies Mm. and about whether a certain person in someone's life qualifies them for the policy. That is a stupid conversation. Like, that's stupid that we do this. If you if someone died who's close enough to you that you want to attend the funeral, why are we having a discussion about whether that person fits within the company's narrow definition of a person that you get time off to go to their funeral for? Wow. You know what I mean? But that's that's gross. That's not a criticism of any specific employer. That's what everybody has out there, because what we tell ourselves about literally everything in America is that we need to put it in a box, mm-hmm. right? We need to figure out what the parameters are of it so that we can consistently enforce it. But grief is not a consistently experienced mm, that's the thing. condition. And what and for whom and when we grieve are not 
consistently definable for each of us. And I think that until we stop this, I mean, and you think about our our whole experience of death is that way, especially in Kentucky where we live. There is a way that you do death, right? There is a certain environment in which you have a visitation and then a funeral. My grandmother, Joy, who I was talking about earlier in the show, used to say, you go to the visitation and you stay for an hour. And that is your responsibility to stay mm-hmm. for an hour. And then you go to the funeral and then you bring food, right? And this is how we know how to do death. And all of our symbols around death are big wooden or stone encasements, right? There is a locking up, a finality. We're putting this person away now, literally. And it's just not healthy for us at all. There's nothing healthy about it. And it's all we know. I do think we've had different national leadership surrounding trauma and death. I think, no, I I would give anything to have a time machine and go back and, and experience it as an American citizen myself. But like, I think Abraham Lincoln exhibited a very different form of leadership around the Civil War and death and how to deal with that. I think FDR exhibited a different kind of leadership around World War II and the Depression, mainly because I think it was that we're in this together and we're going to have sacrifice and we're going to make, we're going to get through this. And I think, you know, it's tough because for better or for worse, like you said, people exhibit it differently. Even when I was watching 102 Minutes That Changed America, there were people on the streets that day that were immediately angry and just ready to drop a carpet bomb across the entire Middle East. And, you know, so I think there were people who very much needed to hear what President Bush said when he said, they're going to hear us over there. We're going to get them because they felt scared and they didn't feel safe. And I understand that. But there were other there were people that needed to hear another message as well. And that's a big ass. But you know what? You're president and nothing that's nothing coming your way except for big ask. Okay, and there needed to be a a, a more complex message that people heard that you are safe, that life will continue, but it will be different. But we will get through that together. We will be in it together. And I think that's why everyone stuck in that day because we were all traumatized together but then no one gave us a path forward together no one said this day traumatized us all and here is how we're going to move forward together we're in this together and i think that americans aren't always great at that because so much of what joins us is an idea and so much of that idea is built on individualism and you know that has its drawbacks obviously it just, you know, it just makes it makes me sad. It really just makes me sad for us because you can you can feel it. You can feel that wound that's still there. I want better for us, and I want better for our kids that they're not just left with this really confusing emotion surrounding this story that animates so much of who we are and what we do and our politics. And the story is so incomplete because we were not allowed or given space to feel sad. Like I even think about those, the poor families, the victims, but particularly the families of the first responders who, you know, I think the story of heroism is, makes some of us feel better than it makes them feel in some ways, because it is a burden to be a hero and it's a burden to be a family of a hero. And it's such a burden to the first responders still here because why was I here? Why was I saved? And they weren't. And I just, it's all so 
heavy. And there was never any, let's share this together. You know, it was either we're going to hold you up on a pedestal and you take the burden of saving us all. Or we either pushed it off on soldiers going abroad. Y'all are going to fix it all. Like you said, it was like these this boxes. Well, those boxes are heavy and cumbersome and not reflective of each other. I think we've gotten progressively worse about this in some ways. Yeah. When you think about what we're teaching our children, I think the way we react to every school shooting mm-hmm. is doing some very severe damage long term. The fact that... We sort of judge who gets to grieve that and who doesn't. Yep. We immediately go into our camps on guns, which is an important part of the discussion and not the only part of the discussion, but it's Mm -hmm. becoming so, right? We go there faster and faster every time. And I'm not saying that it's not appropriate to discuss that immediately. What I'm saying is there is a lot more to discuss And I don't know that we are emotionally doing our children a service by how quickly every conversation goes to the Second Amendment. I think where our understanding of what's happening in the world is so politicized in a way that is paralyzing for us politically, as we talk about on Pantsuit Politics all the time, but even more stunting emotionally. Mm hmm. We're even becoming more judgmental about who gets to grieve and what. I mean, that's a really complicated portion of 9-11 because as much as you and I were affected by that event, we were affected differently than people in New York City. We were affected differently than probably people in Chicago and Atlanta and other places that, that probably experienced a new and very raw awareness of their cities as a potential target. We were affected differently than first responders. We were affected differently than people who were supposed to have been in the towers and weren't for some reason, who were going through that whole sense of why was my train late and my Mm -hmm. friends not? You know, there are so many layers to all this, and we're just very poor culturally at giving people room to dissect all of those emotions without comparing them and judging who really has the superior claim to grief in a particular situation. Because we're so bad at giving grace. I feel like the bigger the trauma, the more grace we have to give. And that's so hard to ask of people, particularly people who you feel are more traumatized than you are. I, I feel that so much in our in my community when there's a trauma. And I think that's what happened so much after this shooting at my high school. There's this profound sense of I cannot do a single thing to make it harder on particularly the parents of the children who died, the families who were um, shot or injured. Like, you don't want to do a single thing to make it harder. And that is a good instinct. But we freeze up. We do this with each other. We're so afraid we'll say the wrong thing, we don't say anything at all. I see this in my community a lot when suicide happens. and Because we don't want to traumatize the family by talking about suicide. And especially, so we wait for them to lead the way, which is an unfair burden on them. And I feel like that's what happened. It happens with 9-11. Like we don't want to, well, we don't want to take it and re-traumatize the victims. We don't want to say, you know, there was that really beautiful piece about the man whose sister died in 9-11. And he was like, my, my sister's grave is now a tourist attraction. And he, and he, I thought what he did was so important because he just said it. You know, he just, let me tell you how I feel about this. 
And we all have to just give him grace. We're not going to tear the memorial down, obviously, and we're going to get things wrong. We're going to get how we memorialize it wrong. We're going to get how we talk about it wrong. We're going to arguably, inevitably hurt someone with our conversations who experienced 9-11 on a more profound way than we did. Because that's what happens when you live in community together. You screw it up. You screw it up and you decide that that is worth it. Because our connection to one another is more important than the hurt we might cause through that connection sometimes. We prioritize the connection. We give grace. We say we're Americans and this was hard and we're going to screw it up. And you see that particularly I felt in that narrative about the pop culture and how we handled it. And people would try and people would be like, oh, no, that's kind of gross. And it's like we just kept – we stopped trying. We stopped trying. We stopped trying to talk about it. We stopped trying to be sad about it and be angry about it and criticize things that happened. We just stopped. All we want to talk about is where was I? Where was I? What happened to me on that day? And I just – it's sad. I recognize the strangeness of saying this um, in the format of a podcast. I think some of this comes from us believing that words are our most valuable tool in these situations. Mm -hmm. We are so afraid of saying the wrong thing. But you can say the wrongest of wrong things if your presence is right. Yeah. And if people can sense your intention, I think part of the reason why our listeners give us so much grace because we do say things that are hurtful to people. Often there isn't right and wrong, but there's right and wrong for a person. Right. And especially when you're talking to a whole lot of people that you don't know at one time, we absolutely say things that hit people in ways that are very hurtful. I think, though, that because our listeners spend so much time with us every week, they sense our intentions. And so they feel comfortable reaching out and saying, you said this thing, it hit me the wrong way, it hurt. And they know that they're going to be met with, we're sorry about that. And here's what we learned from you. And thank you for teaching us that. There's so much power in Thank you for teaching me that. Oh, I've learned something from you now. Oh, I mm-hmm. I can see how that would be hurtful. Mm-hmm. But we don't allow that, I think, because we almost feel like we live and die a sentence at a time in mm-hmm. these situations. And we do not. And we have to trust each other a little bit more, I think, to pick up those intentions and to share with one another, here's how your reaction feels to me. And recognize that both people can have something valid to say. Like that criticism of the 9-11 memorial doesn't invalidate all the good that the 9-11 memorial does in the world too. Right. It can all coexist peacefully, right? All of those emotions can coexist peacefully. I think if we trust one another's humanity a little bit more and stop being so concerned, we're not writing a term paper when someone's grieving. Well, or maybe they won't coexist peacefully, but that is not a permanent state. Right. Right. That is not a permanent state. And let me tell you something we've learned through this podcast. You know, making someone angry, feeling hurt about a criticism you receive is not a permanent state. That's why it gets easier. But if we never try, we never learn that. If we never say, oh, I didn't mean to say that I hurt someone. I misspoke. I didn't get that fact right. And we see that the sun still shines. Then we can't it, – it, it just – it's it remains powerful and the power grows because you don't see that life goes on. And you don't see that we messed it up but we tried again. When you don't do that, when you don't practice that skill 
It just gets scarier and scarier to even think about trying. That's another part of the the new normal, which is such a damaging way to go about this. We talk about we've got to get back to normal in this rush as though there won't be a new equilibrium if we don't. Mm. We will find, we will always find a new equilibrium. It's true. Someday we'll go back to work. Someday we'll shop again. Someday we'll go to the movie theater. Probably very soon on all of those things. After my car accident, I thought I'd never drive a car again. Someday I would. It didn't need to be the next day or the next week. Mm-hmm. So that risk is over-calculated, I think, in our equation of how we deal with these matters. And, and we preclude any metamorphosis. We preclude that transformation that Richard Rohr talks about because we're, we're so – we're in such a rush to make sure that we don't get swallowed up by our grief. I think it goes back to the point we're always making, that we don't allow for seasons. I feel like this podcast should be yes. called The Seasoned Life. We didn't say, as Americans after 9-11, we are going to have a season of grief. Because I know it's not accurate to say this, but it felt like the bombing started the next day. Mm-hmm. And so we got rushed. And look, I don't really subscribe to the stages of grief in the, in a linear fashion. I think for most of my life, I thought you like marched a good little soldier and you checked one off and then you went to the next one. That's not true, at least not for me. It was more like today I will be in this stage and then I will go back to one and now I'm at five for a week and then I'm going to go back to two for a couple of weeks and then I'm, you, you jump around. But it, it felt like there was no space for sadness or we were going to lump it all on the people who were directly affected and the rest of us had to be mad and then quickly back to normal. You know what I mean? Like there was no allowance for a season of let's grieve this. Let's let's think about what this means for all of us. Let's have a national conversation, which is easier said than done with 300 million people. I get that. But, you know, it just, for me, it felt so much like there was one way and that was to be supportive of the war, and we were going to go kill some people, and that was going to make us all feel better. To the point where I've said on the on our other podcast that I was on the streets of D.C., and I said, I don't know how I feel about the war on terror, and this girl I'd never met before told me I hated America. So, I mean, I think that's an important part, the emotional impact of the jingoism, not just on white Americans who disagreed with what was happening after 9-11, but with so many Americans who were discriminated against or ha- felt had violence Put against them like there was this raw anger that was palpable. This get on board or get out of the way. This all or nothing. We're all in. We're all committed. Or you didn't care. Or you didn't. You're not really sad about nine eleven. It was just so traumatizing. Well, and I think probably traumatizing on levels that we can't even appreciate. Something mm-hmm. I've been thinking about a lot is that 9-11, we always talk about it as sort of the first time we didn't feel safe in certain spaces. And now understanding what a privileged perspective that is, that wasn't mm-hmm. the first time lots of Americans didn't feel safe in certain spaces. It was a different kind of threat. But there were certainly people in the United States who faced violence often. Right. But because it affected white America in a lot of ways that I think were different than other parts of, you know, different than other experiences people were having in America, I I can imagine that this trauma was experienced in a very deep way and on multiple kind of cruel levels by historically marginalized groups in our Mm -hmm. country. 
And that's something I've been trying to be very conscious of as we do our research on it. And the other thing I want to say about that as you were talking, Sarah, you know, grief causes us to be childlike in some ways because it it casts us into kind of an otherworldly space. One of the experiences that I had um, related to 9-11, I started my job in the law firm where I used to work as a summer associate in 2005. And very early on in my time there, we had to evacuate the building that I worked in, which was about 35 floors, I think. I should remember that, but I've already forgotten how many buttons were in the elevator. But anyway, we had to evacuate the building as a fire drill. And I remember it taking so long to get out of the building. I mean, it took forever to go down the stairs from the 20th floor where my office was. And I remember being in that stairwell thinking about the people who couldn't get out of the World Trade Center. Mm. And it was like the first time that I had an experience that helped me understand that when you're in a great big building like that, it's not like getting out of my elementary school when we used to do fire drills. And then I felt so morbid and and weird and guilty and inappropriate for having a thought like that about 9-11, about just sort of the physical reality of it. That seemed disrespectful to me to process it in that way. And I think that kind of thing comes up with grief a lot, right? Where you have kind of a childlike observation or question or just learning about it that that we feel like we can't share because it dishonors someone in some way. When I think actually talking about that stuff is sort of really getting into the guts of our grief and our emotional processing. I don't understand survivor's guilt very well. It's not something I particularly experienced after the shooting, but I think I wonder how much there was this like sort of almost a national, particularly in New York City, but even beyond there, survivor's guilt. This feeling of why are we here and so many Americans aren't? And that is just, it's really, really difficult, this thing our brain does in the face of trauma like that. I think survivor's guilt is something that we do very poorly as a culture mm-hmm. as well. Well, we're adding to the a long list of things we don't do great. The one thing I'll say about that before we wrap up is that when I experienced the car accident that I've talked about a few times on the podcast, the most common reaction to my sadness that that someone had died in the other vehicle was kind of, well, I don't really understand why you're taking this so hard. Mm. You didn't know the person. It wasn't your fault. And it was sort of like those two facts should be sufficient to check this off. Wow. Like, I don't have to burden myself with this person's death because they weren't connected to me and I didn't cause it in an intentional or negligent way. And that is crap. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't want to be a person who could live without survivor's guilt on some level. I don't want it to be debilitating. I don't want it to create a sense of unhealthiness in my life. But I can't imagine living without a sense of connection to my fellow human beings in a way that would allow me to just kind of say, oh, you're right. No big deal. I'm alive and another person isn't. 
and we we physically collided in a way that made that happen. I mean, we we just don't know how to talk about that. It's uncomfortable, and it raises more questions than it answers. So much of this is just a reflection of it's uncomfortable, and man, we don't like to be uncomfortable. And I just, you know, in my best Dr. Phil impression, say want to say, how is that working for us, everyone? This avoiding uncomfortable conversations at all costs, uncomfortable emotions, uncomfortable choices or sacrifices, how's it serving us? I teach yin yoga, and one of the things I love about teaching yin yoga is that it is really helping people feel their bodies. Mm. And a lot of us don't feel our bodies, right? And I don't think we can do any of the emotional work that we've just been talking about without feeling your body. And something that I say often is, you know, this might create some discomfort. Try to put your mind right in that discomfort. Do not run away from it. Do not start thinking about what you're going to do after class or what you did today earlier. Don't start making plans or lists. Like just let your mind feel that discomfort because that is how it starts to unravel. And I think that that's a good lesson for grief. I think we should encourage. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Bridge everyone, because I like to get stuck in a bad mental space where, I, like I say, I either want to go back in a time machine and fix it and make the leadership do the right thing or wait for some one person to bring chaos. But that's not realistic, and that's not that's not a real version of connected community either. So we don't have to have a time machine. We don't have to wait for national leadership on this conversation. We've started it today. And the the thing this community is best at doing is continuing it in their own lives. And so we encourage you to find people you trust, find people you love, and have a conversation about 9-11, how you felt at the time. But beyond that, how you felt um, after it happened, how you still feel about it today, what you feel was missed, what you wish had happened. Have that conversation. Have that conversation in your own lives. Or maybe it's not 9-11 for you, but it's something that doesn't get talked about in your family mm. that you think your family really needs to deal with. Maybe that's the right place for your energy. We are going to end, as always, with something that we found inspirational. Sarah, I found something that is not well sourced, so I have no idea who the author of it is. I have no idea if this unfolded the way it is being said it, it has, but I'm still going to share it because I think it's awesome. <laughs> So this was purportedly um, written in response to a Reddit thread about um, death. And one person purportedly wrote, all right, here goes. I'm old. What that means is that I've survived so far and a lot of people I've known and loved did not. I've lost friends, best friends, acquaintances, coworkers, grandparents, moms, relatives, teachers, mentors, students, neighbors, and a host of other folks. I have no children. And I can't imagine the pain it must be to lose a child. But here's my two cents. I wish I could say you get used to people dying. I never did. I don't want to. It tears a hole through me whenever somebody I love dies, no matter the circumstances. But I don't want it to not matter. I don't want it to be something that just passes. My scars are a testament to the love and the relationship that I had for and with that person. 
and if the scar is deep, so was the love, so be it. Scars are a testament to life. Scars are a testament that I can love deeply and live deeply and be cut or even gouged, and that I can heal and continue to live and continue to love, and the scar tissue is stronger than the original flesh ever was. Scars are a testament to life. Scars are only ugly to people who can't see. As for grief, you'll find it comes in waves. When the ship is first wrecked, you're drowning, with wreckage all around you. Everything floating around you reminds you of the beauty and the magnificence of the ship that was and is no more, and all you can do is float. You find some piece of the wreckage and you hang on for a while. Maybe it's some physical thing. Maybe it's a happy memory or a photograph. Maybe it's a person who is also floating. For a while, all you can do is float. Stay alive. In the beginning, the waves are a hundred feet tall and crash over you without mercy. They come ten seconds apart and don't even give you time to catch your breath. All you can do is hang on and float. After a while, maybe weeks, maybe months, you'll find the waves are still one hundred feet tall, but they come further apart. When they come, they still crash all over you and wipe you out, but in between you can breathe, you can function. You never know what's going to trigger the grief. It might be a song, a picture, a street intersection, the smell of a cup of coffee. It can be just about anything, and the wave comes crashing. But in between waves, there is life. Somewhere down the line, and it's different for everybody, you find that the waves are only 80 feet tall or 50 feet tall, and while they still come, they come further apart. You can see them coming an anniversary, a birthday, or Christmas, or landing at O'Hare. You can see it coming for the most part and prepare yourself, and when it washes over you, you know that somehow you will again come out the other side, soaking wet, sputtering, still hanging on to some tiny piece of the wreckage, but you'll come out. Take it from an old guy, the waves never stop coming, and somehow you don't really want them to, but you learn that you'll survive them, and other waves will come and you'll survive them too. If you're lucky, you'll have lots of scars from lots of loves and lots of shipwrecks. That's beautiful. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Nuanced Life. We will be back in your ears on Friday on Pantsuit Politics. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Nuance Life is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. The Nuance Life is listener supported. For $5 a month, you'll receive an extra episode of The Nuance Life at patreon.com slash thenuancelife. You can connect with us on our website, thenuancelife.com, and follow us on Instagram.